All right, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we get into looking at the scripture together, I wanted to say thank you for everybody that helped with our work day yesterday. Can you give them a hand? We had a bunch of people come out. We're, we're really thankful for your work and, and thankful to everybody else that works all the other times, right? But we had this great work day yesterday. Um, I don't know if you noticed, we have trees now on our property. That's like a long-term dream coming true here. So I'm really excited about that. We still have a few tons of rock to move. So Stay posted. We might enlist your help with shovels in the near future. But man, a lot of great things. We had teams like cleaning the nursery and steam cleaning the carpets, uh, moving rock, planting bushes, planting trees. There's a lot of great stuff happening. So we're excited about that. We give praise to God uh, for your work. And we also thank God for trees. They're a a rare jewel in this part of the country. So um, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together now. So if you'll grab a Bible, you might have your own. You could open it to Genesis chapter 42. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles that we've put under the chairs. And those black Bibles, you can turn to page 34. You'll find uh, the section we're going to be in uh, around there, page 34, Genesis chapter 42. This series we're calling the Joseph Stories, the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the end of that first book of the Bible Chapters 37 through 50 are about Joseph. He's a key figure who speaks for God as a prophet. He also is someone that reminds us of Jesus and the way he suffers and then is exalted and saves his people. We talked about this in the past some, but he is like a junior savior pointing us to the bigger savior who is Jesus. And so throughout these stories, we've seen someone who goes through great difficulty but recognizes that God is still at work even in the difficulty. So the subtitle has been God's Purposes, God's Purposes in a Dysfunctional World. So we can connect with that because you and I, we live in this crazy world, and we can trust that God is still at work just like he was for Joseph. This week we're calling it Facing the Judge, Facing the Judge. We're going to look at chapter 42, we're going to get in a little bit into chapter 43, and before we look at the text, I just wanted to bring up this concept of facing a judge. If you've gone to court, if you've had to face the judge, chances are you didn't want to do that, right? It's, it's not really seen as a positive experience in our culture. And, and just recently, um, in Dallas, there was someone who was wrongfully killed, and his mother faced the judge asking for justice. Sometimes when we go to a judge, we're going to the judge asking for justice because other people have been wronged or because we've been wronged. Sometimes when we go to a judge, we're asking for mercy. And what was really interesting about this case in Dallas is that the mother went to the judge pleading for justice, and then the brother of the victim went pleading for forgiveness. Now, I kind of have to distinguish. I don't think he was really asking the earthly judge for forgiveness. He was asking his heavenly father as a believer to forgive this person and offering forgiveness to this person. It was really amazing. If you haven't looked at the story of, of the killing of Botham Jean, I encourage you to, or Botham Jean, I think is how you say it, um, encourage you to look into that story. It's an amazing story where we see mingled together, and everybody's going to debate, that's fine, we can all argue about it later, right? But there's this mingling of, of what is justice and what is mercy. And in this case, in an amazing way, both of those things were mingled together. And we're going to see a similar tension in this story. We're going to see the brothers of Joseph now coming to Joseph as judge. Now, in the text, it's going to say governor or chief or authority based on your translation. But in the ancient Middle East, any authority was also judged. They didn't have a separation of powers like we do in our culture. So, so don't mistake, Joseph is a judge, and he is in a position of giving justice to these brothers, but we're also going to see him showing mercy. 
So we're going to see him giving both justice as judge, but also mercy as judge. So let's read the text. Chapter 42, let's start in verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1, says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Um, that doesn't really convey in the translation. It's kind of like, why are we all sitting around is, is kind of the idea. Like, let's, let's get a move on. Let's do something. Why are you just sitting around looking at one another? Verse 2, and he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. The situation is getting pretty severe. Verse 3 says, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin Joseph's brother with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. We only have to assume he is suspicious of his violent sons. Verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. When, when the brother's dad, when Jacob says, we need to go to Egypt, what do you think is the first thing the brothers thought of when they heard the word Egypt? They, they probably remembered 20 years before where they tried to murder their brother, changed their mind at the last minute, and just sold him into slavery into Egypt. That's probably the last time they really did a lot of deep thinking about Egypt. They probably didn't want to go to Egypt, and they probably didn't want to face this judge. What I want you to be thinking about is that existential feeling you have in your soul when you go to face, maybe it's a traffic court, right? Maybe it's just a simple judge you're facing for a fine. And recognize that, that that twinge of guilt or worry or fear that you have should be compounded by a million when we think about facing the judge of the universe, right? In this story, we have these guys facing a judge. Joseph is governor over Egypt, the strongest power in the, in the ancient world. He is a real judge with real authority to dispense justice. But they're also, I think, hesitating to face the judge of their own conscience, we all have this thing in our soul, we call it a conscience, and it's a judge of right and wrong, and it's a thing that we often don't want to deal with. So my prayer is that as we're thinking about this, and as we're, we're watching the brothers squirm, we're thinking about, man, what am I doing with these feelings I have about facing the judge of my own conscience, judges in my immediate circumstances, ultimately the judge of the universe? What, what am I doing with those feelings? How am I facing the judge? How am I moving forward? How do I see God himself? Let me pray for us, and then we'll unfold the story. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us, because this is an uncomfortable story, and it's an uncomfortable concept. God, we don't want to face judgment. We want grace. We want mercy. And so, God, I want to thank you that the ultimate story you're telling is a story of mercy triumphing over judgment. And we pray that you would give us, by your Spirit, the eyes to see that mercy, that grace, even in this story of what seems to be just judgment. Help us to see the grace. Help us to see what you're doing in our lives, in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have a story of, of facing the judge, of facing judgment. Again, just want to frame this for you because it's easy to just 
zero in on the family tension, right? Joseph's been wronged. Here, his brothers. Is he going to act vengeful? It's, it's easy to kind of throw that into interpersonal relationships. Like we all have messed up families, and we probably go there real quickly, too quickly. Um, but there's also something else at play here, and that is Joseph is a very real judge. He really is in a position of authority here, and his brothers really are having to uh, face the music, so to speak. And so we have to see Joseph as a judge. Also, I think it's helpful to see him as a prophet. We've seen that unfolding in the story. He is someone who's speaking for God. God has given him interpretation of these dreams, and so he has been a mouthpiece for God. So he's speaking with a spiritual authority in this story. And I think that helps us to see kind of more broadly what's going on here, because some of the things that Joseph is going to do are going to seem weird to us. I know particularly to me, like just by temperament, I am one of those people that's kind of soft-spoken, right? Like if, if I have a hard thing to say to somebody, half the time I just won't say it or I'll say it too nicely, right? Like that's kind of my personality. And so in Joseph, I'm like, man, he's, he's kind of being mean here, right? Like that's the... That's the first draft reading I feel. I feel this tension when I'm seeing what, what Joseph's doing. So I'm going to you know, try to untangle some of that for us, but I also just want you to, to live in the tension. Like, read the story, come back next week, read more of the story. We're going to see it unfold, and we're going to kind of put off judgment, so to speak. Pardon the pun. We're going to try to put off judgment of what Joseph's doing and try to just let the, the story teach us. Does that make sense? So some of the things he's going to do seem a little weird. Maybe there are cultural differences. Maybe it's because of his role. We'll try to give the story more time to be unpacked. But as we move through the story, we're going to see, first of all, this call for us to face our need, right? The story starts off with need, a very specific need of a famine and hunger. And need can move us off center. Need can move us to do crazy things like going to Egypt and, and facing judgment, right? And so we want to start there. We've got to face our needs. Secondly, we're going to see that that's going to then push them even farther to face guilt. And we want to think about that in our lives as well. Are you ready to face your guilt? And then finally, facing fear. We're going to see that primarily, a little bit in the brothers, but primarily in the character of Jacob, Joseph's dad, right? So facing need, facing guilt, and facing fear. So first off, we're going to see that we need to face our need, face our need. We see this in verses 1 through 17. Again, Joseph is in a position of authority. He's in a position of leadership. It's his job to dispense justice as a judge here, as governor over Egypt. Jacob figured out that there was grain for sale, and Jacob was like, well, we could die or we could go to Egypt. Jacob doesn't want to see uh, send Benjamin, so we, this is a kind of reading between the lines, but we can kind of assume that he's suspicious of the brothers. If you've read the whole story of Genesis, you know the brothers already did some other crazy things before they tried to murder Joseph. So like he's very aware that he's got a dysfunctional family. He knows that there are issues at play here. So he doesn't want to send Benjamin, his other favorite son, because he's suspicious that the brothers did something with Joseph, the first favorite son. So let's pick up the story again in verse 6. It says, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does that ring a bell? The brothers bowing their faces before Joseph. There's a dream he had at the very beginning of the story. If you're coming in new, I encourage you to go back and read the story. It starts in chapter 37. And Joseph has a dream that his brothers and his parents are all bowing down to him, that he is some kind of king or authority or savior over them. And it's beginning to come true. In verse 7, 
It says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. So going, here's the part where, man, first couple times I read the story, I was like, man, Joseph was mean. That's not okay, right? I wouldn't let him teach Sunday school at my church. I don't know about how he's treating them, right? Like he's being kind of harsh and, and mean. But again, remember, he's, he's a prophet of God. He is a judge over them right now. That's the role he's fulfilling. So he treats them like strangers. He speaks roughly to them. He says, where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Why did they not recognize him? Well, it had been 20 years. They're not sure if he's still alive anymore, so they're not expecting to see him. He's speaking Egyptian. He's all shaved and wearing the weird Egyptian makeup and the headdress and everything, right? Like he's dressed up like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian. It's been 20 years. People look different, right? Like I think I look a little different than I did when I was 17. You know, it's been a long time. And so he's changed. He's wearing different clothes. He's speaking a different language. They don't recognize him. Verse 9, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. I'm sorry I had to say the word nakedness out loud. Um, But it's a Hebrew idiom here. So it's kind of like the uh, weakness of the land or like the the unmentionable part of the land. The, The idea of the idiom is like, you've come to see our weak spots, right? It's war language. You've come to see where we're weak so that you can attack us. That's what he's accusing them of. And they said, verse 10, they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Listen to this. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Is that true? Again, if you know the story, no, it's not true. Go back and read it, 37 uh, up through 41. That'll catch you up to where we are here. Um, they, they tried to murder Joseph. Then last minute change of plans, they sell him into slavery. Then they lie to their father about it and have been lying continually for 20 years now about it. And they say, we, we're honest men. We are honest men. We've never been spies. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man, in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. They're they're there assuming that Joseph is dead. They don't know that it is Joseph. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. So it's kind of like an, an oath of their time and culture. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. So he's testing them, right? Again, Joseph seems like he's being a little rough, but as judge, does he have right to condemn, to test, to move them to a place of repentance? I, I think he does, right? We want to, again, we want to reserve judgment and allow the story to tell itself. So he says, you'll be tested and nothing's going to happen for you unless your youngest brother comes here. Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. So again, I think he's genuinely testing them here, right? There's a veil here of he's concealing what his identity is, but I think it's a genuine test that he's given them. He's trying to figure out if there is any truth in them, if their need is moving them to the place of utter desperation where they will actually begin to deal with the truth. 
He says, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are all spies. Verse 17, and he put them all together in custody for three days. Threw, threw them into jail for three days. Gave them a taste of their own medicine. Um, I think this story is a great example, this beginning part of the story of how need can move us to a place we don't want to go, right? Last week, we didn't really go into detail about this, but last week when Joseph was giving the interpretation of the dreams to Pharaoh, he was saying this thing that I didn't really take time to deal with because we're going to deal with it a little bit here. He's saying God is doing this. I made a big point about how he was warning of what God was going to do, right? And that was nice. And I talked about the grace that that showed, that God would warn a pagan like Pharaoh about what was about to come. But I didn't comment on this other side where he said, this is what God is doing. God is sending a famine. And man, there's a, there's a lot of places our minds can go with this, right? Because you've been through horrible things that should have never happened in your life. I think the God of the Bible would say, injustice is wrong, evil is wrong, you shouldn't have been mistreated, you shouldn't have been abused, right? So I just want to clarify that up front. But the God of the Bible is also this God that is so big and so sovereign that he is also sovereign over our pain and our difficulty. And in this story, he's saying he actually sent the famine. He actually sent the difficulty. And what he did was he sent this difficulty on purpose. And the way I would frame it is this, it's more important that you would come to the bread of eternal life, God himself, than that you would have a full belly of bread. So sometimes God allows you to go without. Sometimes God allows need, which is very painful, to drive you to meet your ultimate need in him. And again, there's just, I know there's like a thousand directions our, our brains can go with this, right? And I don't even pretend to have all the answers. But I do know that God is our ultimate need. And I do know that it's better that I be hungry or that I suffer for a little while than that I be satisfied in an earthly way, so much so that I'm like, I don't need God. I don't need him. And I'm at the place now in my life where I still say, God, we said this last week, God, please take away the pain. But I also recognize how much and how often God uses the pain to continue to to drive me to him. And so here we see this example of need driving someone to go face what they don't want to face. And we're going to see as the story unfolds, helps them to grow spiritually, helps them to come to find God and to deal with him. So my question for you is, are you allowing the need in your life to drive you to deal with your spiritual issues? Or are you just running as as fast as you can in the other direction? Right? Like, here's the thing. It's okay to rail against God. It's okay to ask God, like, why God? It's okay to lament, right? We see that throughout Scripture. All the Bible heroes are like, why God? What are you doing? It's okay to ask that. But don't spend all your time asking that question and not say, God, what do you want me to do with this? Like, what do I do now? Right? Where is God taking you with your need? Are you allowing that need to, to drive you to deal with the unfinished business? Like, what's happening for these brothers? Now, they're Again, this is kind of happening against their will, right? We, we see God's grace even in this painful need driving them to Egypt. They don't want to go to Egypt. They want to continue to ignore it. But God is, is pressing them in this direction. One of the best stories about this in the New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the famous son who comes to his father and says, I wish you were dead. I just want to have my inheritance now. I just want to take my money and run. He gets his money. He goes and he wastes it all in wild living. The story is found in Luke chapter 15. You can go look it up. 
Luke chapter 15, he wastes all his money, he blows it all, hardship comes, he's to the point where he is feeding pigs, which in Jewish culture was like the lowest of the low. He had hit rock bottom. His need was so utter and so huge that he'd gotten to the place where he not only was feeding pigs, which was a disgusting job in that day and age for Jews. It's a disgusting job for anybody, right? Um, how many of you have ever had pigs, kept pigs, some of you? We had a couple of people in the earlier service. Okay, some of you know about this. The rest of us city people like don't really have any idea how dirty they are. Pigs are dirty, okay? I grabbed a picture here to get you to kind of viscerally feel it a little bit. We've got a pig snout in a trough full of like a mixture of trash, old food, and mud. That's what pigs eat. The technical term is slop, okay? It's a scientific word, I think. And so the parable of the prodigal son, in that story, he wants to eat the pig slop. That's how bad the need is. So my question for you is this. Spiritually speaking, are you, are you to the point where you like where garbage looks good to you, right? Like where you're, you're at a place where you're like, man, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought I would go this far. I never thought it would get to this point. That's where the prodigal son ended up, wanting to eat the pig slop, wanting to eat something that the week before would have you know, made him gag. And that is what kind of shocks him. That's what allows him to come to his senses, the text says. And he runs back to his father. Three quick things I want to throw out there before we move on to the next point, right? These are three things that God could be doing with that need, with that hunger. You might be at rock bottom. You might be ready to eat the pig slop. Here are three things that God could be doing with that difficulty in your life and in my life. Paul says in Philippians 3 that all the great things he had accomplished in his previous life, he now sees as slop, garbage, trash compared to knowing Jesus. Sometimes what happens when we're hitting rock bottom is we come to the point of recognizing all the stuff that we thought would save us is just pig slop. It's just garbage. There's this surpassing worth to Jesus. Sometimes that's what God can be doing in the midst of your brokenness, as painful as it is. Sometimes God can simply be developing your perseverance and your faith. James talks about this in James chapter 1. I think it's our least favorite uh, section of Scripture about difficulty and pain because James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers. (laughs) when you face trials of various kinds, and you're like, James, why do you have to say that, right? Like, why say that? That seems a little out of line. He's saying, because it can enable you to develop your faith, to grow in perseverance, to to dig into who God is instead of digging into the trial itself or the difficulty or the pain. It can, can drive you to look to God. And then there's this other beautiful passage where Paul talks again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul gives his, his entire philosophy of ministry And he says it's based on suffering and going through difficulty. He says need can drive us to be comforted by God and then have a platform to comfort others. As we receive comfort from God, then we can comfort others. It's another way that God can work through need in our life. So I just want you to see that as unjust and crazy as it sounds that God would send a famine on his people, he's actually saving his people through the famine. And that doesn't always make sense to us, and, and often hindsight's twenty twenty. Often we have to, you know, walk a ways down that road before we can see that God was meeting needs through these other needs that were taking place. So my big question for you is, how are you dealing with the need? How are you dealing with the pain, the difficulty, the hardship that you're going through 
right now. So those are ways that need can be a blessing in our life. And this next section, we're going to see how need is a blessing in the brothers' lives, right? Because they're not as mature as all those other things I just quoted, right? They're not there yet. They're just hitting the very beginning, and that is uh, facing your guilt. Sometimes need and difficulty in your life and in my life at just a beginner level is helping us be honest about our guilt. Man, I did something wrong, and you know what? I've been hiding it. And now this need and this pain is kind of like pushing it up to the surface. So we pick the story up in verse 18. Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. That sounds like a pretty, pretty good summary of a God-fearing person promising life, right? So here there's a little, it's like a little window of grace. He's He's being harsh, he's giving judgment, he's, he's calling them to justice, but here you see like a little sliver of grace opening up. Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Verse 21, and they did so, is not like, and that second they did it, but more like, and they agreed to it. Like, okay, they agreed to the terms. Well, we could stay in prison and die, or we could agree to your terms and go back and and do what you suggest. So he's testing them again. He's saying, here's an opportunity for you to show that you are truthful. Here's an opportunity for your words to be verified, right? Sometimes need drives us to deal with our guilt and forces us to be honest with something we've been lying about in the past. Are you ready to deal with your guilt? Am I ready to deal with my guilt? This is a really important step in anyone's spiritual growth. If you don't deal with your guilt, you're never going to grow spiritually. And so again, we see great kindness in the harshness of how Joseph is dealing with them. He's testing them. He's pressing them. So, And they did so. As I said in the Hebrew, that really means something more like, and they agreed to it. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth... Here's the truth now. In truth, we are guilty. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So their need has driven them to Egypt, the place they never wanted to go. Now they're facing the judge, a judge they never wanted to face. And now he's pressing them. He's pushing them. And now the truth is coming out. And they're confessing their sin. They're confessing their guilt. Interesting thing, it's just beginning to happen, right? Because they're not ready to confess to Joseph because they think Joseph's an Egyptian, right? Look at the next verse. Verse 22, verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them. Remember, Joseph's dressed up like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian. It says there was an interpreter that stood between them. Verse 24, then he turned away from them and he wept. Another little crack of grace breaking through in the story. He's this harsh judge delivering justice. They finally confess their sin. They they finally confess their guilt. They're finally ready to admit what they've done wrong. And he weeps. He turns away, he he cries. He goes off in another room and he cries. And he gets himself cleaned up and and he comes back in and he's the harsh, hard judge again. He weeps. I think it was a weep of relief. 
We don't know everything that's going through his brain right now, but again, I think we want to withhold judgment, watch the story unfold, but I I think it's a a crack of, of grace. There's relief on his part. He wept. He returned to them, and he spoke to them, and then, he's the judge again, he took Simeon from them, and he bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain, and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? It's an unfolding process, right? They just came to the point of, man, we're guilty. But it's still kind of secret, right? They're just talking amongst themselves. The guilty are saying to the other guilty parties, we're, we're guilty. They're not telling anybody else. It's, it's unfolding more like God has found us out. What is God doing to us? Now we're in deeper trouble, right? There's this, this growing sense of it getting worse and worse. And God is lovingly, through his justice, through their need, pressing them to confess and admit their guilt. I grabbed a picture here of someone dragging a trunk. I wanted to give you a visual image of what we often do with our guilt, right? I think what we often do with our guilt is we lock it in a trunk and we drag it out into the woods and we set it on fire and hope that no one ever finds out about it, right? We try to keep it a secret. I think spiritually, people often go in in one of two ways of trying to keep that secret. One way we go in is just trying to forget it, you know? Like, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I'm going to go get drunk. I'm going to go party. I'm just going to have as much fun as I can, and just let's never talk about it again, right? That's kind of the non-religious way of dealing with guilt. And then there's a religious way of dealing with guilt where we say, like, man, if if I'm so good, if I do so many good things, then that will somehow like paint over the guilt. That'll somehow fix it. The Bible says neither one of those two behaviors is actually dealing with the guilt. We have to bring it out to the surface and and give it to God. But we try to keep it a secret. One of my favorite songs is a song by Andy Gullihorn. The name of the song is The Secret. And in the song, he's talking about how being abused and then responding in a lifetime habit of sin was a secret he was trying to keep from everybody in his world. And the song goes like this. It says, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Back when Charlie was a boy, somebody handed a secret down with a long list of unwritten rules so he'd die before he let it out. It cried out for some room to breathe, but his pride just kept it in the dark. And the darkness was like rainfall to a flower. It needed it to grow. And the roots kept growing deeper till they wrapped their wretched arms around his soul. And he says, you've got to let that secret go. The idea is that hiding it in a trunk is actually what makes it grow. Like ignoring it is what makes it turn into this monster with these tentacles that are like suffocating the life out of you. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his sins will not prosper. If we hide it, if we try to bury it, if we try to keep it a secret, we will not prosper. It says, But he who confesses and forsakes them 
will obtain mercy. We're, we're called to admit it, right? We're called to open up the trunk and just like, here you go, God, here it is. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. But we're promised mercy when we do that. As we cover it over and bury it and hide it, it just grows. It spreads. The, the New Testament reflection of this is in 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, we continue to make ourselves crazy. We're living a world of lies. There's no truth in us. We're deceiving ourselves. We don't know what's up and what's down if we say we have no sin. But if we admit it, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the heart of the gospel. And so even though it seems so crazy that God would send a famine on these poor people, he's driving them to this place of being able to face their guilt and open up that trunk. And obviously the application for us is is we've got to do that too. And God may be graciously pressing you through trials and difficulties to get you to that place of being able to just say, you know, tap out. I give up. I can't do this. I can't bury it. I can't hide it and, and confess and admit. Here's the promise. If, if you do, if you give it to Jesus, he will forgive you. One of the number one reasons that you and I are tempted not to offer it to Jesus we have such a diminished role of his power and his mercy. We believe that we are such great sinners that he can't handle us. I've heard it so many times and I've even thought it myself, right? Like, well, God can, he can forgive these junior sins over here, but my sins are really big and I don't think he can handle them, right? Have you ever thought that? That's like saying you're bigger than God. God doesn't take our sins lightly. He doesn't just sweep them under the rug. It's not like God's like, yeah, it's no big deal, so I forgive you, right? Because that's kind of how we forgive people. I'll forgive minor things. I don't forgive big things. I'll hold that grudge till I die, right? But that's not how God operates. God took our sins so seriously that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's the Christian message. Not they're no big deal, but they are the biggest deal. And he came and lived a perfect life that we we're supposed to live, and he died a sacrificial, substitutionary death. He, he took our sins upon himself. He gives us his resurrection life. The resurrection proves that he did conquer sin and death, that he was strong enough to deal with your sin and my sin. So our job is to just open up the trunk and say, here it is. Forgive me. Now, I believe that's where the brothers are going. I think they're still in process. They're not there yet. So no, I'm, I'm praying for you that God would... Keep the process going in your life as well. He gets you to that point of being able to confess and admit your guilt. Proverbs 28, 1 John 1 says you've got to offer that to God. But then James chapter 5 says it's an ongoing habit too. So there's this once and for all, you're forgiven. And once you give your sins to Jesus, you're in his hand and nothing can snatch you out of his hand, we're told in the Gospel of John. You are secure. But there's this working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. There's this habit we begin to form where we recognize that then in an ongoing way, any sin I allow to take root in my heart, if I don't bring it to the light and offer it to Jesus, it's going to fester, right? Like I might be secure and I might be saved, but I want to build a habit of just opening those things up again and again. And so this ongoing habit is often done in community. So we do it in kind of a corporate formal way as we confess our sins in church together, but it's really helpful to have real friends that you can do this with. 
So in James 5, it says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. And so we talk about doing that in a small group. We set up small groups you can get with other people and, and just share what's going on. And I know, you know, real life, one week you're like, I don't want to talk about my sins. Let's just talk about this Bible verse. That's more comfortable, right? But continue to press in to, to being honest with others, saying, I need, I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling. You may not have the time to get in a formal group, right? I encourage you to at least have a friend that you can have coffee with and say, let's read a Bible verse. Let's talk about how we're struggling and, and pray for each other. Celebrate Recovery is a program we do that for. It's kind of like small groups on steroids where it's just a very structured way of doing community life together to deal with whatever hurts or habits or hangups you're struggling with. I encourage you to, to find one of those resources to do James 5, right? Admit your guilt. Bring your guilt to Jesus and trust he can forgive you and he will forgive you. But then get in relationships of, of ongoing praying for one another that you may be healed. So the last thing that we see is we are to face our fear. We are to face our fear. And what I'm going to do is to kind of summarize this because it's a big chunk of text. And so what happens here is they're like, okay, we have no other choice, you know, but to go back and try to get Benjamin. They go back and they try to get Benjamin and Jacob will have none of it, right? He's already worried. He didn't want to send Benjamin in the first place. So he's just putting them off. He's saying, I don't think so. Um, we also see the unpacking of, they realize, man, we've all got the money given back to us. And so there's kind of a more of a realization that, that they're in trouble. Verse 35 of chapter 42 says, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in a sack. So we already saw it like one guy found his bundle of money. Now all of them see their bundle of money. So now they're really worried. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. So the story, we're supposed to see fear. Fear has gripped them. Fear has gripped the brothers. And fear has especially gripped Jacob. Because he's already lost his favorite son. He doesn't want to lose his other favorite son, right? And so that's what the battle is here. Joseph's trying to get him to bring Benjamin back. They don't want to send Benjamin, or at least Jacob doesn't want to. Look at verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. So here he's, he's basically just accusing them of doing something with Joseph, right? He still doesn't really know what happened, but he's like, man, you've taken my kids. You've taken Joseph 20 years ago. Now you just took Simeon, who's in prison in Egypt, and now you want to take Benjamin as well. So he's now, he's hit the edge of his worst fears are coming true, right? Everything's being stripped away from him. So the question is, what do we do when we're facing our worst fears? We have a beautiful example from Jacob. And, and why it's so great is it's a good example, but it's also kind of like, like a halfway unfaithful example. So we f see faith in the midst of unfaithfulness, right? Um, like when we see the story in Luke where the guy says, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? That's the kind of prayer that we see coming out of Jacob in the midst of his fear. Look at uh, verse 14 in chapter 43. So we're going to skip down to chapter 43 now. Verse 14, he gets to the point where he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So how does he get to this point? Well, need, again, is part of what drives him to this point. Need. Because what? They ran out of food. So they come back with food and supplies, and they're like, all right, we've got to get Benjamin to get our brother back. And he's like, nope, not doing it. 
They eat their food, they run out. The famine is still happening. Need is still pressing them to deal with their issues. And so that need helps prod Jacob along to a place of faith where he says, may God give grace. But even if he doesn't, it's going to be what it's going to be. And this is a reflection of what we talked about last week when I was talking about how God can use our suffering. And I said, it's always okay to pray both prayers simultaneously because we see this model in the life of Jesus. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, he's praying that God take the pain away. God, will you grant mercy? Will you free me from this difficulty? And then Jesus also says, but not my will, your will be done. And I said last week, the faithful Christian is going to be praying both of those all the time. We're praying that all the time. And need really helps to get us there, right? Need can press us into that direction. Fear can press us into that direction. Everything falling apart can press us into that place. of just like, okay, God, will you please give me mercy? Will you please make the pain stop? But also, whatever you do, you do. I'm going to trust you. Now, again, here, the example of Jacob, it's kind of halfway, right? There's like, you see him kind of faltering in his fear, reaching out in faith. But still, it's an example of, of prayer that, that we're called to. We have these brochures that we've been passing out to a lot of people. It's a picture of someone praying I brought up up there. Um, but we have this thing called Targeted Prayers for the Church. I really encourage you to grab this. It's just got a different prayer for all 31 days of the calendar. Prayers for our church specifically, but also God's people in general, the community in general, leaders, ourselves, different people involved in church life. It's just a way to kind of guide our prayers together that we would be a group of people that are praying on purpose. Because I think it's a wonderful grace of God when our fear and our need and our difficult circumstances can drive us to prayer. But here's the thing. We want to not just pray when we're desperate. Even when things are cool and everything's fine, we also want to pray desperately, right? And so we can learn these lessons in the valley and the difficulty so that when everything is going great, we can still be these kinds of praying people. Another resource I've recommended many times is a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And in that book, one of my favorite quotes is that learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. And so here we see God's people learning desperation, learning to cling to Jesus in the midst of desperation. And so when you plan to have a discipline of prayer, what you're saying is, you know what, God, I'm going to pray on the days even when everything seems fine and I don't think I need you, right? So I encourage you to grab those brochures. We can be a church that's, that's praying together, that's on the same page. I want us to think about just a couple more things and we'll wrap up. One is it's, it's not just need that drove Jacob to say this prayer. But when he finally decided to send Benjamin, it was right on the, the tail of Judah, who's the great-great-grandfather of Jesus. Judah said, I'll offer myself in Benjamin's place. I'll be a sacrifice. And so we also get that little reminder of our God who is not just a judge, not just a God of justice, but also a God of grace, a God of sacrifice. A God who doesn't just ask us to be just. A God who doesn't just ask us to make sacrifices, but he makes the ultimate sacrifice himself. And so that's another part of the story. I encourage you to go back and read the details. We see Judah saying, I'll give myself. I'll offer myself as a pledge and as a sacrifice. And again, this reminds us of Jesus. We've said repeatedly, all the failing characters of the Old Testament are supposed to remind us of Jesus. They're supposed to help us look forward to the real hero who will never fail us. All these other heroes were 
We're halfway heroes. You know, they saved on one day and they failed on the next. Jesus is the hero who never lets us down. And so I want to finish with this quote from Acts chapter 10 that describes Jesus as a judge. And it says in Acts chapter 10, 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We often talk about sweet Jesus and kind Jesus and forgiving Jesus and patient Jesus, but we don't often talk about Jesus as judge, Jesus as the governor of the entire universe. But repeatedly in the book of Acts, that's what the apostles preached. They were like, you know what? Jesus rose from the dead, and that proves that he's king of the universe, that he is judge of the living and the dead. And the New Testament says that there is a judgment where we will go one way or the other. One judgment is, if you don't want me, if you want your sin, I will give you that forever. And the the word for that is hell. The word for living apart from God for eternity. Because we are glorious, eternal beings. And God says, you can continue to seek shelter in yourself and your own sin. And that's called hell. It's a horrible place and you don't want to go there. Or you can run to me for forgiveness and for freedom. And this quote in Acts chapter 10, it says, He's the judge. He was appointed by God through his resurrection to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So when we think about judgment, and if we think about the judgment we deserve, we don't want to skip over that too quickly, right? Like there's real guilt. There's real wrong that needs to be dealt with. There's real injustice that we've committed. But the beautiful thing is, how Romans describes it, God is both just and the justifier of the wicked. He's both the one that demands justice from us and he's the one that makes payment through the cross. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us, that you call us to yourself to recognize in fear and trembling that you are the judge that demands justice from us. But you are also the justifier of the wicked. You are the one who takes people like us and makes us right with you by giving us yourself, by giving us your substitutionary righteousness, by saving us, by forgiving us. God, help us to to bring it out in the light. Help us to confess to you. Help us to build relationships of ongoing transparency that we would pray for each other, that we would be a light in the darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.